your breasts, not because you were ashamed of being naked. You used to not know you were naked. You used to not know shame, but because you also didn't know about braids, bobs, ponytails, French twists. You used to lie on soft dew-covered grass. You used to pluck fruit from bushes and trees. You used to be vegan, but didn't know you were vegan. You never considered eating animals because they were your only friends. You used to get your protein from nuts and legumes. You didn't know about steak. You didn't know about pork chops or meatloaf or baby back ribs. Your best animal friend was Squirrel. Squirrel always made you laugh. You didn't get most of his jokes, didn't understand the references, but his delivery was so impeccable, you laughed anyway. Squirrel really knew how to tell a joke, and he was so knowledgeable about nuts. He taught you everything you know about pistachios, everything you know about walnuts and cashews. You used to not know about good or evil. You used to not know about deceit anger, disobedience, or neglect. When you spoke with God, you mostly just exchanged pleasantries. How is everything in the garden, God would say, and you would say, perfect. And how is everything in heaven, you would say, and God would say, the same. You used to have sex, but didn't know you were having sex. It was just something nice you did, like lying in a sun-dappled meadow, or eating legumes or pistachios. You didn't know about ovaries or seminal fluid. You didn't know about clitoral stimulation, or birth control, or birth. You stuck to one position. You never considered any alternatives. Afterward, you used to never feel vulnerable, or guilty, or weird. You used to eat peaches after sex. They were easily accessible. There used to be peaches everywhere. It's a lot hotter outside Eden. Drier, too, and sandier. Back when your clothes were just a fig leaf you held over your pubis, sand got everywhere. You dress better now, but still get sand in your eyes and mouth. The fruits outside Eden all have that sand taste. The water tastes different, too, even though it comes from the same river. It's hard for you to articulate what it tastes like. There are so many words you don't know. You're still learning so much, all the time. You and Adam live on one side of the river, and your neighbors Dave and Trish live on the other. Dave and Trish have always lived outside Eden. The water tastes like water to them. They possess no point of comparison. Dave and Trish don't have animal friends because Dave hunts the animals with a spear for sustenance. You've tried to introduce yourself to the animals, but they always keep their distance. They assume Dave must be lurking nearby, eager to hurl his spear. Dave and Trish are your only friends now. Your animal friends back in Eden said they keep in touch, but you haven't heard from them since God gave you and Adam the heave-ho. Dave and Trish are good neighbors. 
They taught you about clothes so you don't have to hold a fig leaf over your pubis and keep your hair draped over your breasts all the time. Trish cut your hair to shoulder length, layered the sides, feathered your bangs. It was just too hot for all that hair. Adam's not too wild about your new haircut and says he has a right to be consulted before you make such drastic changes to your appearance because you were created from his rib. Adam loves to play the rib card. He never lets you forget where you came from, runs his finger across his left breast where his rib once was as he reminds you that you once were bone and marrow covering his heart. Outside Eden, the stars are still there, but the grass isn't. The ground is hot and scraggly and full of insects who bite you for no reason. You've tried to speak to the insects to settle your differences, but they won't explain themselves. They just bite. You've asked Adam to build you a shack, but he says you don't need one. Adam isn't much of a builder. His whole life, everything he needed was always provided for him. Cool water to drink, a woman to keep him company, delicious fruit ripe for the plucking. The fruit plucking days are over though. Every morning you wake up with insect bites all over your legs and a mouth full of sand. Adam have had to learn about hunting and gathering. You're not a big fan of either. You don't like hunting because you would rather earn the friendship and support of the animals outside Eden instead of chasing and killing them for sustenance. And you don't like gathering because gathering means also crouching and searching and scrounging and foraging. Whereas back in Eden, plucking just meant plucking. Adam says it's his job to hunt and your job to gather, but you don't understand why. It sure wasn't God who told him that. God hasn't spoken to you or Adam since he gave you both the heave-ho. You've wanted to talk to him, but aren't sure how to get his attention. You've tried throwing sticks at the clouds, but that didn't work. You've tried developing an alphabet so you could write to God in the sand, but that didn't work. friends were animals, you used to play a game called What Is This with your friend Gazelle. The rules of What Is This were that one contestant looked at something and asked, What is this? And the other contestant said what it was. It was Adam's job to name everything in Eden. He had named Gazelle Gazelle and Pelican Pelican and Pomegranates Pomegranates and Phlegm Phlegm. But there were so many names to remember, 
you and Gazelle could never keep track of them all. You would look at Wildebeest and ask, what is this? And Gazelle would say, Craig. And Gazelle would look at Mealworm and ask, what is this? And you would say, Courtney. Adam was not a fan of what is this. If he overheard you calling Wildebeest Craig or Mealworm Courtney, he would get very upset. God had entrusted him with naming all that lies beneath the heavens, and he took this duty very seriously. Too seriously to allow Wildebeest to be called Craig, that was for sure. You would ask him, why couldn't he just name some of what lies beneath the heavens, and you could name the rest? And he'd say that God was very clear on wanting him, Adam, to be the one who names things, and you, Eve, to be the one who calls things by these names. You still played What Is This, though, when Adam was out of earshot. You hadn't eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil yet. You didn't know that you could be wrong. You didn't know that you could be right. Spend your life in books Catching what you is still with Dave in their shack, and so you gather alone, walking along the riverbank, looking for anything you would conceivably want to put into your mouth. You've been thinking about asking Dave to build you and Adam a shack. You feel like a shack might just be the thing to bring you and Adam close to each other again. In Eden, you always slept in Adam's arms, drifting into dreams as he named the stars. But outside Eden, Adam stays up so late, wandering along the river, doing 
God knows what in the moonlight. You're always fast asleep by the time he returns. Things haven't been the same since the apple. That loincloth always puts him in foul mood. He complains about it all the time, in a way that implies that it's all your fault. He's perpetually chafed and itchy. You've tried to talk to him about what happened back in Eden, tried to get him to open up about what he's feeling and why he's grown so distant, but he doesn't want to discuss it. But maybe he would, inside his shack. You've already started decorating the shack, in your mind. Besides looking for anything you would conceivably put into your mouth while you gather, you look for anything you would conceivably put inside a shack. Dave and Trisha's shack has a really nice braided rug. That rug is one of the few things you've seen outside Eden that would have been nice to have back in paradise. Why hadn't God given you a rug instead of a tree that harbored your inevitable doom? It was stuff like this that made you question God's judgment more and more every day. about Dave and Trish is that Dave doesn't belittle Trish by reminding her that she came from Dave's rib. That's because Trish didn't come from Dave's rib. They met each other one day while gathering and have been together ever since. It's sure where they came from. God has never spoken to them. God has never instructed them on which fruits they can or cannot eat, or commanded them to name all that lies beneath the heavens. They've named all that lies beneath the heavens just because it made more sense for things to have names than to not have names. Another favorite thing about Dave and Trish is that Trish gets to name things too. Trish named Rug, and Shack, and Beige and burnt umber. Trish has so many different names for brown, whereas Adam just has brown. Trish is blessed with such a good attention for detail. She notices all the little things. You want to learn how to see the world the way she sees it. Even after eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's so hard for you to tell the difference between russet and sepia an ochre. Adam doesn't trust Trish. He says sepia and ochre are a conspiracy. You tell Trish not to take it personally. Adam's just longing for the old days when everything was brown. emerges from her shack and joins you for some gathering. Your morning gathering wasn't very productive. 
the only things you found that you would conceivably put in your mouth were some roots. And now even those roots are starting to give you second thoughts. You miss the fruits and Eden so much. Dates, cherries, pomegranates, melon, tangerines. Trish has asked you to describe what they taste like, but how do you explain a date to someone who's never had a date? A cherry to someone who's never had a cherry? All you can tell her is that they don't taste like sand. You dream sometimes about your old animal friends, Eagle and Pelican, flying out of Eden to deliver you a fresh crop of apricots or oranges. Waking up is always so sad. No oranges, no animal friends, just insects biting your legs and a breakfast of questionable looking roots. Another thing Trish has asked you to describe is God. The truth is, you've never gotten a good look at him. Whenever he appeared to you and Adam and Eden, he was always accompanied by a blinding flash of light, so you had to avert your eyes. You can describe his voice, though. It's more nasal than you would expect. He has sort of an accent, too. A heaven accent, you suppose. Maybe the angels all talk like that, too. But you're not sure. You've never talked to any angels. You wonder what the angels think about the whole tree of knowledge of good and evil business. Did any of them express any concerns when God stuck that tree in the garden? Did any of them suggest maybe planting something more benign, like a pear tree or some nice juniper shrubs instead? You've tried inviting the angels down to earth, but they never respond either when you throw sticks at the clouds or write messages in the sand. You're not entirely sure they're real. Maybe God just made them up when he was trying to wind up conversations in the Eden days. Love to chat more, he'd say, but the angels are calling me. Talk soon. Bye. Dave and Trish didn't know about angels. They didn't know about God. They figured that above the clouds were just more clouds. Eden is supposedly guarded by angels now, and a giant flaming sword. God said if you ever tried to return, you'd be hacked to pieces. You've never seen a sword before. Your understanding is that it's like a stick, but sharper. Dave taught Adam how to make a spear, which is also like a stick, but sharper just at the very tip. Dave often invites Adam to go spearing, but Adam always says, maybe some other time. You suspect Adam is embarrassed by how much better Dave is at spearing than he is. Adam is very competitive. Maybe that's what he's doing when he wanders the riverbank so late at night, practicing spearing. Dave is better than Adam at almost everything, but Trish says Adam has a nicer body, which he does. Adam's stomach is lean and muscular, while Dave's looks like it's storing a few hunts worth of flank steaks in case he ever wants to take a sabbatical from spearing. You can't quite articulate why Adam's stomach is better than Dave's stomach, but some post-apple animal part of you understands that it is. Trish says you're a lucky woman, but you disagree. 
a lucky woman isn't thrown out of paradise due to an isolated rule infraction. A lucky woman isn't condemned to die for taking bad advice from a serpent. Trish has an amazing stomach. It's hard not to notice. You're sure Adam notices it too. You wonder if Adam thinks Trish is prettier than you. You and Adam don't have sex anymore. Sex got weird after you both ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Before, sex hadn't meant anything. It was like eating or drinking. No one asks what eating means. No one ponders the significance of drinking. But now, sex suddenly has layers of meaning attached to it. That first time, after you ate from the apple, the things you did and the things you wanted to do made you feel confused and guilty and ashamed. You cried afterwards. It was the first time you'd ever cried. You thought your eyes were broken. You know now, of course, that your eyes are fine. You cry all the time now. It's nothing to be worried about. your sides, convulsing on the sand, your roots scattering to the river and carried by the currents far away. outside Eden for not being friendly. You acknowledge they have justifiable concern that you were going to murder them and consume their flesh. You've tried to convince them you're a vegan and are only seeking their companionship, but they don't trust you. Maybe they will, in time. You hope so. Trish and you have become close, but at night she retires to her shack with Dave and Adam disappears down the river, and you're left all alone on the sand. It would be nice to have someone to talk to. You talk to God sometimes, but it's a one-sided conversation. It's been a long time since you've heard his nasal voice echoing down from heaven. You tell him you're sorry. You now understand that what you did was wrong. At the same time, though, having not yet eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there was no way you could have known that what you did was wrong until you did the very thing that allowed you to understand that it was wrong. 
Wasn't that a little unfair? Wasn't that a form of entrapment? Now, upon being granted the ability to discern the morality of your choices, shouldn't you be offered a second chance? Is God not talking to you because he's angry with you, or is he not talking because he realizes that maybe he's wrong? Why put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden in the first place, and without any sort of fencing or protective barriers to ensure that you couldn't be lured by a smooth-talking reptile to eat from its fruit? You wish you could talk to your old animal friends in Eden to see what they think. Squirrel, gazelle, pelican, reed warbler. Why haven't they come to visit you? Did God forbid them from leaving Eden? Did he kill them? Have they been hunted by the guard angels? Hacked to pieces by the flaming sword? Or do they just think you're a bad person? A bad apple? She defied God once, they think. What else is she capable of? What other evil resides within her heart? So God can't spy on your breasts from heaven. 
Trish doesn't understand your hang-up about nudity, and to be honest, you don't really understand it either. The tree of knowledge of good and evil hit you with a lot of information all at once, and you're still sorting through it. And maybe if you'd eaten the whole apple, you'd have a better handle on everything. At the very least, you could have taken a bigger bite. You follow Trish into the shallows of the river, and she demonstrates several types of floats. The vertical back float, the horizontal back float, the survival float. Trish is so smart. She didn't even eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She just figured out floating by herself. You're nervous about getting your head wet, but Trish holds on to you and promises that nothing bad will happen to you, that she won't let go. I'm going to count to three, and then you're going to dunk your head underwater, okay? Trish says. Trish taught you about numbers a few days ago. They're so helpful. Back in Eden, you couldn't count anything. It made determining a winner of peach-eating contests impossible. Adam still doesn't believe in counting, despite your explanations. You told him Trish knows so many different numbers, she can count all the stars, and Adam said she must be a sorceress. You wish Dave and Trish could have seen Eden. They would have loved it there. You wouldn't have wanted them to hunt and consume your animal friends, of course, but you're sure you could have persuaded them to convert to veganism once they realized how easy fruit plucking was. Trish always asks you to tell her about Eden while you're gathering together along the riverbank, how the weather was always perfect and the ground was covered in soft, lush grass, and the insects engaged you in civil conversation instead of biting your arms and legs. Dave could have built the best shack in Eden. You and Trish and Gazelle could have played some amazing games of what is this. Trish has been letting you name some things recently, but Adam still doesn't recognize their validity. He refuses to call the black-bellied sand grouse you spotted in the sky the black-bellied sand grouse, bristles at calling the peppermint you gathered from the riverbank peppermint. I'm the one who names things around here, he reminds you. Don't forget where you came from. You're so sick of hearing about his stupid fucking rib. Like you were actually made from his rib in the first place. Like that makes any sense at all. Another thing you learned from the tree of knowledge of good and evil is the concept of metaphor. But Adam doesn't believe in metaphors. He took the smallest, daintiest bite of that apple. some mud to smear over your insect bites. Adam is either already out or hasn't returned from the night before. This isn't unusual. Lately, you only see him when he comes to collect his share of the roots and river mushrooms that you and Trish have gathered. 
you reach the bank and scoop mud onto your inflamed feet and ankles until you notice a familiar creature with dark hooves and a silver mane and rippling muscular haunches dunking her head into the water a little ways up the river. Horse. It has to be her. She used to let you climb onto her back and ride her naked across the open fields of Eden. You wonder if she'll recognize you in your tunic. She's never seen you wear clothes before. You wonder what she'll think of your feathered bangs. You've been dreaming about this moment. Your old friends from paradise in search of you, discovering you along the riverbank and telling you it's time to come home. A different animal in each dream. Badger. Mole rat. Heron. Salamander had not dreamed of horse, but here she is, come for you at last, and you call to her, horse, horse, so happy to see her, so eager to hear news about squirrel and gazelle and all the others in Eden, but as you approach, a horse rears up out of the water and reveals a single spear-like horn jutting from her forehead. What is this? Gazelle would have asked you. It's not horse at all, but something else, something unknown and unnamed. She doesn't look like a Sheila. She doesn't look like a Cassidy or a Doreen. The first name you come up with that actually seems to fit is Unicorn. Where do the names come from? Who knows? Black-bellied sand grouse just look like black-bellied sand grouse. Peppermint looks like peppermint, and unicorn looks like unicorn. You wonder sometimes about the names. The animals in Eden never got to name themselves, as God had handed over their naming rights to Adam to emphasize a man's dominion over all that lies beneath the heavens. But what if they had? Would they have seen themselves differently? Would they have been prouder of themselves, felt like they had fuller ownership of who they were and what they could become? What if a unicorn already has a name? Who are you to decide what she is and is not? You tell unicorn your name is Eve and identify yourself as a practicing vegan, but before you can say anything else, she gallops off along the river away from Eden her hooves kicking up thick clods of sand in a cloud of dust. This always happens. The animals out here never believe you're a vegan. You didn't even get to ask for her name. For now, she'll have to be Unicorn. What is this? Gazelle might have asked, and you might have answered. What is the word for the precise moment when you realize that a dream is only a dream. Later, you see Dave and Trish lounging in front of their shack, and you tell them about Unicorn. Like horse, but with a horn, you say, but Dave and Trish have never seen horse, either. You draw a picture with a stick in the sand. First horse, then Unicorn. Hmm, says Trish. Trish is a visual learner. Dave sprints inside the shack and collects his spear. 
That's the first thing you want to do, you say, as Dave emerges from the shack, sharpening the business end of his spear. You haven't even seen Unicorn yet, and already you want to kill her? Of course, says Dave. How else are we going to find out what she tastes like? You're glad it wasn't Dave who discovered Unicorn on one of his hunting trips. She was so beautiful. You feel like there was something shared between you in the moment before she galloped off down the river. You can't articulate why, but you feel like in time she could trust you, that one day you could become friends. Adam comes for the roots you and Trish have gathered, and you tell him about Unicorn. Adam knows about horse, so he doesn't need a sand picture. As expected, he doesn't recognize the validity of the name Unicorn, and says her name is Charlene. Adam wants to hunt and consume her, too. If Dave and Adam had actually seen what you had seen, you're sure they wouldn't have wanted to kill her. At least Dave wouldn't have. Unicorn is more than meat. Dave would have understood that. Dave's basically a good guy. He just gets over-eager with a spear in his hand. Men are like that, Trish says. But Dave and Adam are the only men Trish has ever known. Adam gets anxious with a spear in his hand. He'll only spear in the dark. He's too proud to let anyone see him miss. signals, pulling a wet blanket on and off the fire and watching the puffs of smoke rise slowly up into the heavens. Adam hates that you can make fire and he can't. Whenever he sees the smoke signals, he runs over to your fire and stamps it out, tells you that fire is a man's domain and will only get you burned. You feel like both Adam and God respect women. The way they both talk to you is so condescending. Mankind this and mankind that. Never a mention of womankind. Dave isn't as bad as them, but even he won't let Trish hunt. You're sure Trish would be amazing with a spear. Trish is the best at everything. But you and Trish are always made to feel second rate. Afterthought. God created man, then, oh wait, I guess I'll also create woman. You're pretty sure God just fucked up and forgot one of Adam's ribs and then made up that bullshit story about the rib becoming you so Adam wouldn't feel like a physical freak. Adam's ego is so fragile. I mean, you have all your ribs, now that you make a big deal about it. Does God understand woman at all? Are there any women in his life? Has he ever had a girlfriend? These are among the many questions you have for him, but he won't answer your sand messages, won't respond to your smoke signals. What is he doing up there? What is he thinking? You miss God, too. Not in the same way you miss Squirrel and Gazelle, but you do miss him. 
you'd only explain the full consequences of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil more comprehensively, you never would have followed the advice of that serpent. And what did this serpent get out of tricking you like that? What was his motive? Was he sent by God? Was the whole thing a setup? You keep sending the smoke signals, but all they do is disappear unanswered into the clouds. If fire is a man's domain, then a woman's domain is smoke and ash. Men won't let you have anything except for what they carelessly leave behind. Adam saying to you, to Adam, 
blood is and will always be red. Homes being stranger since you've been gone. above the shack and the wind. Trish says the flag came to her in a dream. The flag symbolizes Dave and Trish's dominion over their side of the river, and the colors symbolize the three varieties of dye that were available when Trish made the flag. The flag is a good idea. In Eden, Adam had God to tell the animals that mankind held dominion over all that lies beneath the heavens. But outside Eden, Dave and Trish have no such celestial spokesmen. The flag is a more than adequate substitute, especially for visual thinkers like Trish. You hope to someday hold dominion over something so you can have a flag fluttering capriciously above your shack. You haven't spoken to Adam since he struck and bloodied you. Whenever he returns from his hunts to collect his share of your and Trisha's gathering, you retreat to your shack and chew on your roots alone. In Eden, you rarely spent a moment apart. You ate together, bathed together, lay in sun-dappled meadows together, slept together every night beneath the stars you didn't yet know how to count. You didn't know about love in Eden. It wasn't until you bit into the apple that the word love flooded through you along with so many other new words like fear and immodesty and inferiority and cruelty and doubt. You didn't understand any of it at first. There was so much new data to process. In just one bite, your vocabulary expanded a thousandfold beyond the animals and plants and natural phenomena that Adam had dutifully named. Were you and Adam in love? Did love exist in Eden? Could it have if there wasn't even a word for it? 
You hadn't been hungry until the apple taught you about hunger. You hadn't been afraid until the apple taught you about fear. Your understanding of the world is so different now. It's hard for you to remember exactly what your time in Eden was like. You're not entirely sure that what you remember about Eden is real or imagined or a composite of truth and dreams. If you went back there now, somehow slipped past the guardian angels and the giant flaming sword, would it even be paradise anymore? Now that you know about boredom, would you be bored? Would you be dissatisfied? Would paradise leave you wanting something more? You've been trying to improve your handwriting in case God hasn't responded to your sand messages because they're legible, but still he won't answer you. Surely God can't be illiterate, can he? There's so much you don't know about him about what he's doing all day high up above you, above the clouds, above the clouds, above the clouds. You've been spending more time on Dave and Trish's side of the river. You feel safer there. Trish had helped clean your bloodied face after you had crossed the rope bridge and collapsed crying outside the door to her shack. She and Dave didn't ask too many questions. You didn't want to talk about it and were sure they understood the basic elements of what had transpired. You asked Dave for spearing lessons and he refused at first, but Trish lobbied on your behalf and now you receive spearing instruction three days a week. Trish just taught you about weeks and months and years. She has such a keen sense of organization. There's a calendar in her shack on which she crosses off the days and records major events. Met Adam and Eve is on the calendar. So is Invented Flag and Discovered Fire and Eve meets Unicorn. You've been keeping your eye out for Unicorn while gathering with Trish along the riverbank, but haven't seen her. You know Adam and Dave are searching for her on their hunts. Perhaps she senses she's in danger and has galloped off somewhere far, far away. The other animals still won't believe that you're a vegan. You can't really blame them for prioritizing survival over friendship, but it still hurts you to be so distrusted. You wish one of the animals from Eden could talk to them and vouch for your character, but your old friends still haven't come to visit you. And besides, would they even vouch for you now, post-Apple? Or would they tell the animals outside Eden to steer clear of you, to not fall victim to your deceitful plots, lest they too be punished by God as your accessory to a crime? like the condemned to life spent slithering serpent. You wish you could talk to the serpent again. The more you think about it, the more you're certain that God asked him to tell you to bite the apple, that God wanted you out of Eden and just needed a justifiable excuse to banish you. God had to have put the tree of knowledge of good and evil there for a reason. It was an easy out for him in case he ever decided that paradise wasn't truly paradise unless you and Adam were gone. 
but why did he want to banish you? Were you not good enough for him? He had made you. Any imperfections that you exhibited would have been indictments of his own shoddy craftsmanship. Perhaps, whenever he looked at you, you reminded him of his own failings, and he had decided to go back to the drawing board and start over fresh. Perhaps there was a new Adam and Eve in Eden at this very moment, with nicer stomachs, better eyesight, improved posture, faultless dispositions and attitudes. Perhaps the new Adam was better at naming things than the old Adam. Perhaps he himself had a different name. Howard and Barb, Doug and Tina, Digger and Candy, Chester, and Suze. spearing. Dave made you a spear of your own and you practice with it every day, thrusting it at imagined enemies and hurling it at chalked targets on the trunks of trees. Dave doesn't understand why you're so interested in spearing if you won't hunt. You explain that you would rather know how to use a spear and never have to use it than the other way around. And besides, you love your spear love the feel of it in your hands, love sharpening its tip and your shack as you wait for Adam to finish his portion of river mushrooms, love the sound the spear makes as it whistles through the air. At night, when Dave and Trish retire together to their bed, you lie down on the floor of your shack and sleep with a spear in your arms. You haven't slept this well in months, now that you know what months are. You have a calendar of your own now, on the wall of your shack. The first event you recorded was Eve gets a spear. Besides spearing, and swimming, and calendars, another new thing you've learned about is begetting. One morning, while gathering roots with Trish along the riverbank, Trish asked if you'd noticed that her stomach had been getting larger, and you had, but thought it would be rude to mention it. Biting into that apple had taught you a thing or two about acceptable lines of questioning regarding a woman's stomach. Trish asked if you knew why her stomach was getting larger, and you said you figured she was saving flank steaks for later like Dave did with his stomach, but she said no, it was because she soon would be begetting. Begetting, she explained, was how new people were made. You knew it. You knew you hadn't come from the rib of some asshole who didn't believe in counting or the color burgundy. Trish said that she had begat before, but not successfully. She had made a new person, but the person she made was dead. She said she was making a live person this time, though. She could feel it. She placed your hand on her stomach so you could feel it too. And you could. You could. Trisha's amazing stomach was getting more amazing all the time. One of the best parts about begetting is that it means you get to have a birthday party. There were, of course, no birthdays in Eden. You and Adam didn't know about begetting, and even if you had, 
you also didn't know about calendars, counting. Dave and Trish didn't remember the exact day they had been begotten, so they just chose their own birthdays. They had discovered birthdays, after all. It was their prerogative. They asked you if you'd like to choose your own birthday, and you said no. They could choose it and surprise you. Trish said that when it was your birthday, you got to eat things that were nicer than the things you usually ate, and people sang to you and gave you special gifts. You had just learned about singing, too. It was so much better than talking. You wondered why people didn't just sing all the time, but then you supposed it was the same reason Dave and Trish didn't celebrate their birthday every day. It seems like anything you do just gets worse and worse the more you do it. Who knows why? Life is so confusing. That apple needed to come with an instruction manual, but instead it came with a one-way ticket out of paradise and a restraining order. fall asleep, you wander along the riverbank like Adam used to do back when you slept alone on the sand. It's so peaceful at night, so easy for your thoughts to wander downstream in the moonlight. Are there angels on the moon? Is there another Eden there? Is there another Adam and Eve looking down upon the earth, not yet banished from their home, not yet double-crossed by a duplicitous snake? You think Adam did love you once, or at least he could have loved you, but the apple ruined everything. You understand now that he blames you and you alone for his dismissal from Eden. Not God, not the serpent, not himself, only you. What's more, he believes you willfully deceived him, that having already bit into the apple, you understood the consequences of your actions as you offered him the fruit that would condemn him to die. But that isn't what happened at all. You didn't understand anything back then. You didn't know about calendars, didn't know about colors, didn't know about begetting, didn't know how to count. You had God, who never once came down to earth to visit you, who was always accompanied by a blinding flash of light so you couldn't look at him, who issued bizarre ultimatums on fruit consumption he didn't even bother trying to explain. And then you had Serpent, one of your animal friends, someone you knew and trusted, who you regularly exchanged good-natured banter with, who had never given you any reason to doubt him, telling you that God was a liar, and if you ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you wouldn't die, but would instead become gods. Remember, at the time, you didn't even know what good or evil was. The tree of knowledge of good and evil may as well have been called the tree of knowledge of Linda and Gary, of Dean and Kathy, of Winona and Bruce. So you made a mistake. One mistake, and there was no possible way for you to understand what you were doing. You were beyond dumb back then. You actually thought, for a time, that a rib could sprout arms and legs and a face and torso and breasts and become a woman. 
and a person who believed that do anything with intent? Was what you did worth the death penalty? Did God's punishment in any way fit the crime? And why wasn't Adam on your side? It would have made your lives so much easier if he had supported you after your banishment, if he had stuck by you, if he had told you that you were both in this together. But instead, he holds you responsible for the full breadth of his misfortune. Does he know how terrible that makes you feel? Did he not witness you crying all the time for weeks after you left the Gardens of Eden? You wish you could go back and change what you did, but you can't. All you can do is choose how you live from this point on, and this is no way to live. You miss Adam too, not the Adam who struck you, who belittled you, who made you the scapegoat for his suffering, but the Adam who used to lay with you in sun-dappled meadows and feed you peaches and go to sleep with you in his arms. There's a dream you have, sometimes, where Adam splits into two Adams, the Adam of now and the Adam of before, and you search for the Adam of before at night along the riverbank until he appears to you riding atop a unicorn and offering his hand to pull you onto the back of the beautiful creature so you can return together to your rightful home in paradise. You search for the atom of before at night along the riverbank in real life too, but never find him, never find the silver-maned, ivory-horned mare. The moon is getting smaller now, so much for the angels and God's second home. Even if the moon is a nice place to live, what would it matter? It always disappears. your spear and pointed at Dave's carotid artery. 
to bring you a breakfast of your favorite fruits and sing a special birthday song, and Trish hands you a gift wrapped in palm fronds. You pull off the palm fronds to reveal an all-white flag of your very own, and Dave says he'll build you a pole after he gets back from hunting. Finally, you'll have dominion over at least some of what lies beneath the heavens. You leap up and hug Dave and Trish and start to cry. Trish is getting closer and closer to begetting. Her stomach looks like it has so many flank steaks inside it now. Trish says that after she begets, she'll be a mother and you can be a godmother, which sounds very exciting even though you don't understand what it means. In Eden, you knew about fathers. God always loved it when you and Adam called him our father, but you had never heard about mothers. Why hadn't God mentioned mothers to you? Did you have a mother? Did he have a mother? Why is God so secretive and mysterious? What does he have to hide? You're looking forward to being a godmother. You don't know what a godmother has to do with God, but you're up for the challenge. You feel capable of anything. Trish says your flag symbolizes both your dominion over your side of the river and your newfound independence, and the color white symbolizes that Trish ran out of dye. You tell her the flag is perfect. It's just what you wanted. You hug her again and can feel the little person inside her still alive, still kicking, still preparing to be begotten. shack to install the flagpole. Trish, meanwhile, is back in her own shack on the other side of the river. The little person inside her makes her often sick or sleepy. Becoming a mother seems like it's very demanding, but so far becoming a godmother has been easy as plucking a peach. You stay inside your shack during the flagpole installation to get out of the sun. It's a scorcher today so hot out that Dave is stripped down to just his loincloth. After an hour, Dave comes inside your shack and says the flagpole is almost ready and asks if you have any water. You offer him a clay pot you had dipped into the river in the morning and he empties the pot with one voracious gulp. Do you mind if I rest here a while out of the sun before I finish up the flagpole, he says. Of course, you say. My home is your home. Besides, you built it. As Dave stretches out on the floor of your shack and wipes away the sweat that pools perpetually on his forehead, you ask him if he's excited about Trisha's begetting, and he says sure he is, excited and nervous and elated and a little bit afraid. You tell him you're excited too, that you've never been a godmother before. You ask him if he's ever met any godmothers before, and he says no, you will be the first. So, have you and Adam ever begotten, Dave asks. You tell him no. Really? Not even back in Eden? You shake your head, and Dave says, that's hard to believe. 
Why is that hard to believe, you ask? I didn't even know what begetting was until Trish explained it to me. And how did she explain it, says Dave. She said she was making a new person in her stomach. She had made one before, but it was dead. I've never known a dead person before. I don't know if you know, but God condemned me to die too. Are you condemned to die? I wouldn't use the word condemned, says Dave. But yes, one day I'll die. Everyone dies. I was going to live forever, you say. We were, Adam and me. That sounds like it could have gotten boring, says Dave. We didn't know about boredom back then. I guess it could have. I never thought about it that way. Everything gets boring if you do it too much, says Dave. Like the fruits we brought you for your birthday party. You love those fruits, right? But what if you ate them every day? Sooner or later, you're gonna long for something else. Dave lightly rests his hand on your knee. Eve, he says, did Trish explain to you how she made a new person? You don't fully understand what's happening to you, but suddenly your heart starts beating very quickly and sweat collects on your forehead just like it has on Dave's after his labor in the hot sun. His hand stays on your knee and the way he's looking at you is very strange. It's a look you've seen somewhere before, but you can't quite place where. You're very beautiful, Eve, says Dave. Did Adam ever tell you that? Adam never did. He and you didn't know about beauty back in Eden. You were both so dumb, it's truly embarrassing. And once he did know about beauty, he certainly never said you were beautiful. He was always mad at you, mad that you wanted him to build you a shack, that you didn't gather the roots that he liked, that you tried to teach him sorcery like the color vermilion or counting. You would have thought that being called beautiful would make you feel good, but when Dave calls you beautiful, it seems like he's calling you something else. There's still so much about words you don't understand. Dave's hand moves from your knee to your thigh, and you realize where you've seen the look in his eyes before. It's the same look that the serpent gave you before sweet-talking you into eating the apple. You leap up, grab your spear, and sprint out of the shack. Wait, says Dave, come back. I think there's been a misunderstanding. You keep running, straight for the rope bridge, not looking back. Dave calls to you again, says the flagpole's nearly done. He just needs a few more minutes. You've never run this quickly before. The spear in a death grip in your right hand. You cross the bridge and reach Trish's shack, where she's resting in bed. Trish, you say, it's hard for you to speak. Your words come out in short, staccato bursts, punctuated by heavy, wheezy breaths. Trish, we have to get out of here. Come with me. Come, I'm gonna take you to Eden. Are you okay? says Trish. What happened to you? Is it Adam? Talk to me. What did he do to you? No, you say. Dave. He's one of them. Trish sits up and looks at you quizzically. What are you talking about, she says. One of them? One of who? It's not his fault, you say. I don't think it's his fault. It's God who made him do it. God wants him to trick us. 
Trish reaches for a pot of river water and offers it to you. Here, she says, drink this. Sit down. Tell me what happened from the beginning. Please, you say, please come with me to Eden. He never banished you. He never said anything about you. You'll be safe there. I promise. You and the new person. Please, come with me. You're crying now. You've dropped to your knees on the floor of Trisha's shack, struggling to collect your breath in between speech and sobs. Trish, you hear Dave say from outside the shack. Trish, honey. You jump to your feet and leave the shack and head back to the river, following the bank in the direction toward Eden. You keep going and going and going, not once looking back, not slowing, not stopping, even as your muscles cramp and burn and beg you for relief beneath the unimpeded swelter of the sun. Finally, after who knows how many cubits, Trish only recently taught you about measuring distance. You collapse onto the sand, your spear falling beside you. You've never ventured this far away from your new home. You've passed through here once before, during your exodus from Eden, but nothing is familiar. You remember so little of those days immediately preceding your banishment. You've had so many nightmares about those days that you can no longer discern what is real from what was merely a dream. You lie in the sand for a while, unable to move. You're incredibly thirsty and the river is right beside you, but you can't rouse yourself to drink from its waters. You're so tired. You just want to sleep. Everything will be fine if you just get some sleep. Before you can drift off, you hear something in the water a little ways upriver. You open your eyes and your vision is blurry, but the shape ahead of you gradually comes into focus and you can make out the horn, the hooves, and the silver mane of the beautiful beast that you call Unicorn and Adam calls Charlene. Hello, you rasp. You can barely speak. You don't know if Unicorn can even hear you. Hello, I'm Eve. We've met before. I don't know your name. In case you don't already have a name, I've named you Unicorn. But if you prefer a different name, by all means, please let me know. I don't hold dominion over you. I only recently acquired a flag. I'm not quite sure what I hold dominion over yet. I know I have a spear, but I'm not going to hurt you. It's just better to have a spear and never need to use it than the other way around. That's what I always say. I thought I was going to have to use it. Thankfully, I didn't. I'm a vegan, by the way. That means I have no desire to consume you for sustenance. If you have any questions about my veganism, I'm happy to answer them for you. Unicorn lifts her head from the water's edge and looks at you, but doesn't say a word. Maybe she can't speak. The animals outside Eden aren't so talkative. I don't know if you've already heard of me, you say. I don't know what the other animals have told you, but let me clear up some common misconceptions. Was I thrown out of Eden? Yes. Am I condemned to death? Yes. At an indeterminate date in the future? Yes. 
Am I therefore unworthy of friendship or trust? No. There were many mitigating circumstances surrounding my dismissal from my home and sentencing for a crime that I believe was not even a crime. One, was I fully aware of my actions when I consumed the alleged fruit of knowledge of good and evil? No. By definition, only those who eat from aforementioned fruit are capable of discerning good from evil. Therefore, there is no way I could have comprehended the morality or quote-unquote rightness of any of my actions. If I invite someone to play a game and neglect to explain the rules to her, do I become upset with her when she breaks the rules? Or does the blame instead lie with myself for not explaining the rules in the first place? Two, I have a reason to suspect my banishment from Eden was the direct result of a collusion between God and Serpent to further God's interests. Let's review the facts. One day, out of nowhere, Serpent suggests that I eat the fruit from the one tree in the Garden of Eden I'm not allowed to eat from. I tell him, no, God has forbidden me to eat from Affirmation Tree, as anyone who eats from it will surely die. Serpent says this is untrue. He says God only said this because he knows that whosoever eats from the tree will themselves become gods. I believe him, eat from the tree, offer its fruit to Adam, and then God gives us all a stern talking to, banishes us from Eden, condemns us to death, and forces Serpent to slither on his belly for all of his days. Now, why did Serpent want me to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? What did he have to gain? Absolutely nothing. In fact, he actually lost his ability to walk. Legs are great. Why would you ever want to lose them? Have you ever tried slithering in the hot sand? It's a terrible way to spend one's time. You never get that sand taste out of your mouth. But let's suppose for a second that Serpent didn't act alone and was instead instructed to seduce me into eating from the fruit by God. What does God have to lose? Absolutely nothing. Do we become gods when we eat from the apple? No, we do not. What does God have to gain? For one, justification from expelling us from Eden. But why? Now that, I'm not sure, but I suspect that right now, at this very moment, there's a new Adam and Eve living in the garden. They may go by different names. They may go by Wilt and Pepper, or Chad and Tay-Tay, or Fran and Cheryl. Maybe God got tired of us. Maybe he got bored. I don't know. But I want you to take me back there. I want to present my case to the guardian angels. Because, three, I am a good person. I will not be defined by one youthful mistake. I've learned so much since I left my home and I feel like I'm deserving of a second chance. I've been punished as an irredeemable criminal and yet my actions have only bettered myself. I now know about calendars. I know about the color mahogany. I know how to hurl a spear and make a fire and perform the survival float and count all the stars in the heavens. I know right from wrong. I know generosity from pettiness. I know cruelty from kindness. I know hatred from love. So I'm asking you, please, 
please take me home. I want to go home. And at that moment, you hear a familiar whistling sound, a whistle you've grown to love, now suddenly terrifying as its source appears, a hurled spear burying itself deep into Unicorn's neck, dropping her to the bank of the river. You scream, pull yourself upright, and stagger over to Unicorn, rubbing her nose and horn as her eyes grow big and white and her blood spills out onto the sand. Up close, she's more beautiful than you ever realized. You throw your arms around her neck and rest your cheek against her silver mane. Everything dies. Everything dies, but you were supposed to live forever. You hear Adam's voice behind you, but it sounds strange and far away, like God's voice, his nasal heaven accent reverberating from low-hanging clouds. Your hands and arms are covered in unicorn's blood, which is now crimson, but will soon dry and become blood red. And you wonder how blood cannot always be blood red, and who decided which red blood is and isn't, and which color red the apple was, the apple you ate before you knew there were more reds than red, before you knew there were more blues than blue, before you knew that so much could depend upon a single fruit, ripe and sweet, growing in the garden that God himself planted, and saw that it was good. I wasn't planning on the end. I wasn't looking for a new scene to begin. There was a day and then a night. It isn't Sometimes you're gone, sometimes 
nothing much, but it's a 